they might think it's the editing that's the, the problem as to why they're not achieving that kind of finished, polished image that they're looking for. But actually, it could be something so simple as the aperture use in shooting isn't the thing that's giving them that narrative story filled image. But only at the point of actually having a conversation about it, would it be um, obvious to them? Because like I said, I think a lot of us just fall into a habitual way of doing things. And I think just as much as we sit down and create like end of year blog posts or we do our audits in terms of sales and income for the year and all that kind of stuff um you know we never kind of sit there and go you know i'm gonna sit and look at my images and just see what it is that's not quite working for me or what i want to improve on you know so it's definitely the shooting side that's the first downfall the goal isn't to live forever the goal is to create something that will. Welcome to Perspective, a podcast for wedding creatives, where we sit down with special guests and talk about our many years of experience in the wedding industry so that you can learn from us and grow your wedding business. If you're a photographer who loves making beautiful images but struggles with your post-production, don't worry, because we're talking all about colouring on today's episode with Amy Lee Atkins. Amy runs the mentoring program over at Northern Presets Co. and helps photographers worldwide build custom Lightroom and capture one presets and styles for their signature look. With a firm belief in giving help and support where needed and a constant awareness of people being disappointed with their editing, her mentoring program tackles every hurdle you can come across in editing. So let's see if this conversation can help you with yours. This episode is, of course, sponsored by With Jack, and now for a limited time by Beans.ie. So, Greg, let me pass you the coffee, and you can tell everyone what we're drinking. We are drinking the Harkin Coffee's Summer Blend. So, this is the second one that we've tried out of the latest delivery we've had. Mm-hmm. Summer Blend is Ethiopian, Nicaraguan, and Colombian. So, it's 50% Ethiopian. Oh. It says it's a real crowd-pleaser. Big, sweet, with lots of fruit notes. It's versatile enough, can be brewed with any method. What did you brew on? Just the Chemex. Chemex. Yep, nice and simple. That's kind of my preferred private. Hang on. Oh, yes. That is good. But then at this point in the day where I've not had a coffee and it's my first cup, I always think the coffees are good. Nice wee fruity note there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yes, as photographers and filmmakers and business owners, we know the power of stories and our sponsor does too. Beans.ie started because they knew there were so many stories about the world of coffee and not just about the regions or the varieties, but about the people behind the beans, the roasters and us, the drinkers. This is the most flexible coffee subscription that we've ever showcased Oh no, my goodness, I'm butchering the, sh- the sponsor now. I'll start again with that line. This is the most flexible coffee subscription that we've ever used, showcasing some of the top roasters around the world who bring something different to your table. You've been listening to Greg and I talk for years now about what, we've, what, about what we're drinking at our podcast table, and now you can join us. Curate your own monthly subscription with an ever-changing list of beautiful coffees, and because you are our besties, the Cinemate crew are... Hooking you up with an awesome promotional code. 
if you use promo code PERSPECTIVE15, you can get 15% off your first order. That is promo code PERSPECTIVE15. You can get 15% off your first order. For Coffees with Stories, sent straight to your door. Oh my goodness. Because that's live. That's terrible. Ah, oh, <laughs> god damn. Anyway, hello, Amy Lee. How are you? And what are you drinking? Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on today. Oh, um, pleasure. I'm actually disappointed I don't have coffee right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've just got some simple water because I'm uh, trying to get my water intake mm. where it needs to be. Yeah, I struggle with that as well, actually. I feel like if I if I don't start off with pouring myself a, a very big liter bottle of water, I just forget to drink throughout the day, which is terrible. Carry your bottle around with you, <sighs> as Greg shakes his. Ah, honestly, <laughs> but yeah, th- thank you uh, for joining us. Um, I think this is going to be a really good chat for people who, you know, you know, do struggle with their post production. Uh, I know there are many of us out there. I'm trying to remember the first time I heard about you, Emily, because um, it must have been, it. well, it was through Clubhouse, and I, I remember being called up uh, by Neil Thomas Douglas because he was complimenting us on our colours, um, which is funny because I don't I, I don't feel like they're anywhere near perfect, so that that was nice. Um, but yeah, you, you were talking, and um, like I said before the podcast, you know, every time I listen to you, I feel like I am learning something completely new that just feels like, you know, as a professional who, you know, color grades or, you know, works with images, works with video, that I should know this. And I know that many other people, you know, should know these things as well. So, yes, but I have to apologize because the first time I heard you talk, I was like, oh my goodness, I love what you're saying. You have to come on the podcast. And then I forgot to message you back. You did. You left me hanging. <laughs> I'm absolutely <laughs> terrible. I am so, so, so sorry. And Shocking. Uh, yeah, I know. It's funny. Well, it's not funny. That is so rude. So again, I am so sorry. But I was at the time just kind of listening to Clubhouse. I, I didn't mean to engage. Um but I was cleaning the toilets at the at the time. <laughs> so so um yeah, it was um uh, yeah, so sorry, but thank you very much for coming. G- coming, um, I think it's gonna be, yeah, I, just a really good chat, and I, I can't wait to hear more about your insights for color grading. Awesome! Yeah. No, mm. all is forgiven, and I'm I'm glad to be here. I've been asked to do many many of these things, and I always kind of shy away from it. But uh, no, I'm excited <laughs> to be on this podcast with you guys. Yes, yeah. we're excited. Apologies for Simon being so rude. I can't say. <laughs> so obviously, we're going to be talking about colouring in this op- uh, this episode. Uh, but how how wide sort of does that go? Because we are filmmakers. Some of our listeners are, but majority are mainly photographers. But can can what we're going to talk about relate in the workflow terms to f- filmmakers as well? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, it's it's mainly about just image making process whether that's moving images still images um it's the same kind of process and the same consideration needs to be given to both aspects for sure okay because obviously like the content that we create is similar in a way you know moving images and images you know but you know the file types are very different 
how we how we approach color grading compared to that of like uh, Lightroom or Capture One, you know, very different. So it's kind of nice to hear that that's going to be the theory behind the it. The theory behind the it is going to be the same. Yeah, the theory behind it is exactly the same. It's just the mechanics and the process is what is different. But it doesn't just differ between moving image and still image. It, it differs between just styles of images in general, you know, for mm-hmm. what what a light and airy videographer or still image maker photographer is going for um, is very different to the kind of earthy moody vibes of a photographer videographer Mm. Um, so the process to get to that end result is is very different regardless of what whether it's moving or still (laughs) it's just the mechanics and the process is is different but Mm. the color theory um, and the kind of analysis that needs to be put into place and the control within that post-production is very similar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is obviously, this, this is a casual section of the podcast. So what have you been up to recently? Have you been shooting? Have you been up to anything behind the scenes on your business? Um, for me, guys, it's it's kind of all taken a little bit of a shift. So I'm doing a lot of writing for a professional photo magazine. Mm. Um, and I'm doing a lot of um, working with software companies, testing their products. Um, so, oh, it's a shame. It's a shame that today is the day before a launch of a bit of software, which is tomorrow, and I can't talk about oh. it. <laughs> it's so gutting. You cruel, cruel lady. An, I know. It's, <laughs> a, it's an incredible bit of software, so um, keep your eyes peeled for that. But, yeah, I'm just kind of doing that stuff, and it's totally different for me because I'm not a writer. Um, I'm really bad at writing copy and um, all that kind of stuff. So it's been a bit of a different challenge, but it's good. Um so yeah, I've kind of diversified into that that realm at the minute. Mm. So what so what kind of stuff are you are you, are you um, doing for the magazine? So you're writing. Yeah, so I'm basically the kind of quote unquote software expert or mm-hmm. editing expert. Oh, so yeah. all the different bits of software out there, you know, I've kind of extensively tested them now, done reviews on them. Um, yeah, kind of tutorial stuff, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, and it's been actually mind-blowing. Um, you know, some of the software I'd never even heard of myself. And oh, yeah. um, some of the software is actually incredible. Um, so it really kind of pauses that question of, you know, why is it certain software like Lightroom is kind of industry standard, you know, mm. amongst us, really? Yeah. Um, because there's some some flaws with that, but then other bits of software does <laughs> does the stuff like ten times better. Uh-huh. So it's a, it's a, obviously that comes down to mass marketing through Adobe, doesn't it? But yeah, yeah. it's been eye opening and mm-hmm. um, yeah, incredible. I've been recently looking into a lot of artificial intelligence in software as well, which is um, again mind blowing mm. stuff. Yeah, <laughs> what what kind of what kind of software is that? So we've got Portrait Pro, which most photographers will be aware of already. That's kind of where it does automation in skin smoothing, um, facial structure, all that kind of stuff. Um, 
But then you've got bits of software like Skylum Luminar AI, which is completely AI based. And yeah, that's just mind blowing in itself because you, you, you put put a bunch of raw files in there and it'll basically tell you how it thinks it should mm-hmm. be edited based on different moods and styles and stuff. And yeah. so it essentially in one click, like loads, a whole bunch of images or a whole edit session could be done like mm-hmm. in seconds. Yeah. So it's, it's quite frightening, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've seen quite a few people on YouTube who've, they've obviously been given sort of early access or something asked to talk about the product Luminar mm-hmm. and it does look like it's got loads of potential to be something amazing in future but right now it seems like the edits are quite over the top yeah I don't know whether that's just the way the people are using them in the videos yeah but it looks like it's quite exaggerated editing Mm-hmm. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean. It kind of leans towards that kind of HDR yeah. vibe because they they also um, introduced a bit of software called Aurora HDR. So that's kind of where they come from. Right. All right. Okay. But it all kind of has that that look that looks a little bit over processed. But yeah, it's um it's a whole new world, and yeah. uh, just looking at all these bits of software is. Yeah, I mean, the, the options that we've got in the industry are just vast. And it's, I think it's about just identifying what works for the, for the individual photographer. You know, mm-hmm. one workflow, one bit of software is not going to suit everybody. Yeah. How, how do you feel about software that, you know, edits in, in one click? Um, I mean, like I said, it's both mind blowing and scary at the same time, you know. <laughs> It, it definitely has um, it has a market, and I think for I mean for for say a commercial photographer who doesn't necessarily have a, a signature style in terms of like their imagery, mm-hmm. they kind of mold and fit the brief of their client, you know, whether it's to fit that product that they're photographing or or whatever to fit the brand. Yeah, I think if you're that type of photographer. Um, bits of software like Luminar is incredible, you know, in terms of like speeding up your workflow, because essentially what that does is it reads the image and the tones in the image and then suggests a template, um, a way in which it thinks that image could be edited. Mm. And you can always come in and kind of control it or kind of reduce the amount that it wants to put on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it does a very, very good job at kind of reading the image and and, and sort of giving you a style to suit very mm-hmm. well. Like I've tested it with lots of like kind of earthy um, vibes, like maybe coffee products or like hiking gear or whatever, you know, and it kind yeah. of it, it understands that that's the aesthetic. So it's really, really impressive. And I think for that photographer, in terms of like efficiency and time management, you know, it's it's kind of like a no brainer. Mm-hmm. But for all of the photographers that are kind of really, you know, interested in the image making process and having a signature, um, you know, editing style and somebody who wants that kind of level of control obviously it's not not for any of those guys <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so it's about it's about the market i guess mm-hmm. so there's definitely 
a place for it in the industry. Um, yeah. I personally wouldn't use that, um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it is incredible and it does it does have a valid place. I think. Yeah, sure. yeah, that's cool. Um, I'm just going to do a wee Q and A reminder because I I actually would love to hear people's thoughts on you know like if you have if you have a strong feeling towards any particular software that you love it or you hate it. Um, I would actually love to hear your thoughts during the Q&A section, which will be at the end of this podcast. Thank you very much to our Clubhouse listeners for joining us live. That is awesome. We uh, appreciate your support. Um, if you aren't a member of our Clubhouse room, you can go ahead and follow that. And if you're not a fan, if you're not a fan, if you're not a member of our Patreon page as well, um, you can get access to the Q&A section if you're listening back to this audio as a podcast, you can um, go to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash perspective by Cinemate. Um, and you can listen to our Clubhouse uh, conversations, which is cool for people who are Android because unfortunately you're still left out of this app. But um, yeah. Anyway, we are talking to Amy Lee and I want to get to know Amy Lee a little bit better. So Greg, hit that button. Before I do that, I'm just going to say this coffee is getting better as it cools down. It's got that late Ethiopian fruity kick to it that comes in as it cools down even more. I'm enjoying it. Anyway, continue. Yeah. Emily, thank you very much for joining us. Obviously, at the beginning of this recording, I did an introduction to you, but I always like to ask our guests to tell us themselves who they are and what they do. So Amy Lee, who are you and what do you do? <laughs> Thanks guys. Um, I'm, I work with photographers all over the world and it's, it's a one-to-one service where I basically help them figure out their signature editing style. But it's not just about the editing style. It's about, having structure in workflow, making sure that you're maximizing on efficiency and consistency. Um, and also just really kind of pushing that photographer to think about things in terms of the shooting as well, um, because that obviously plays a role in, in the final image and, and what that looks like. So it's, it's, a, it's a kind of collaboration in a way, but um, yeah, I'm, the preset maker, apparently. <laughs> you have, you, <laughs> if you didn't already know. Yeah, I love that. Who, who gave you that name? Or is that, did you self-bestow <laughs> yourself with that title? I think everybody else gives me that name. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So tell us, tell us how you got here. Like, talk to us about your journey. So um, you guys might be familiar with a, a worldwide community called Looks Like Film. Mm-hmm. So I was one of the original staff members on Looks Like Film and I did all of the testing for the first set of presets that came out with those guys. So it was the Lauren and Chris presets, Don and Helen and Ryan Longnecker presets. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I just kind of got into presets through that really. Um, I, I kind of... Uh, 
I don't want to like mass diss um, <laughs> <laughs> the presets out there, but a lot of people really struggled getting on with those presets, even though they loved that kind of aesthetic. Mm. Um, so I really kind of um, just identified that that it was a struggle for many, many people and just, just presets editing in general is kind of like a massive bugbear to a lot of photographers Mm. so I kind of got a little bit just uh, geeky and obsessive really kind of figuring out what presets out there were doing um really being surprised at some of the the methods involved in uh, (laughs) some of the presets out there as well and and the fact that they could be sold mass market Uh um (laughs) and then um some of my friends came to me and they was like, you know, this isn't working for me. I said to them, just make your own preset. You know, that's the only way it's really going to work for you is just really f- sitting down, taking the time to figure it out mm-hmm. um, and building your own. And then they were like, well, can you not just do it for me? <laughs> so, of course, I did. Yeah. Um, and then those people liked those and then they told some more people and it it just massively snowballed from there where I was making presets for people. Um, But I soon realized that regardless of how good the preset was that people were getting, Mm -hmm. um, the use how people were using the presets were were maybe not in the most controlled way. So they they were still struggling to get the end result that they were looking for. So it's at that point that I created this whole program that I do where we look at pretty much everything that that plays a role in that that final image, you know. Mm -hmm. So from shooting, from culling, um, right the way through to actually editing, um, and now it's it's more of a well-rounded thing where, it, you know, I'm not just Lightroom based, you know, I'm working with lots of people that are interested in Capture One and, mm. um, you know, maybe people are still in that, that method of using Photoshop and Camera Raw. And for, so for them, I'm like transferring them onto a different bit of a, a workflow that's going to just be more efficient for them. So it's kind of just like all things post-production really is kind mm. of what I'm covering. Um, yeah. So yeah, that brings me to here. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any uh, photography work yourself? Is this did did you come at it from a photographer's perspective or or, or yeah, no? absolutely. Yeah? Okay. So um, I'm a photographer. I mainly do elopements now in the mm-hmm. Lake District. Um, I only take a limited amount of bookings now because this is more my thing. You know, this keeps yeah, me yeah. busy enough. Um, <laughs> But yeah, absolutely. It was from that perspective. Um, you know, I've been through many years of trying to figure out my own editing style and what works for me. And I've experienced the frustrations that, that most people experience, I think, in, <laughs> in post-production. So yeah, yeah, it's very much from that perspective as well. Yeah. What well, are you, are you saying you too yourself had a whole stack of presets that you sometimes or sometimes <laughs> did not use on all of your images? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> all 50 of them where I just kind of renamed them for that couple yep. that I tweaked to and then on the next wedding I renamed it to that couple and then number two or whatever yeah, <laughs> yeah I've been through all that oh man yeah yeah I feel like I'm there as well obviously myself not a photographer um or not a, not a photographer in business um obviously I take 
progress of family and stuff. But it, it is so funny because obviously I've got presets that I shove on and I, I am getting to the point where I'm liking a, a certain number of looks but then, you know, I'd go walking in a, a new location and then suddenly the presets that I like the look of just don't work. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think it's I think that's commonplace for, for most people. Yeah. And I think yeah. it's down to um, a number of factors as to why that is. You know, I think it, everything from our mood at the time of editing mm. right the way through to you know sometimes stylized presets just don't respond in every scenario in the way that they should so uh-huh. yeah. yeah yeah so why do you think presets are so popular then if they if they don't offer that sort of solution to every situation is it is it a way for people just to make extra money why do the customers like to buy them i think it's down to just industry standard i think lots of photographers just you know when we get into the industry you know we all kind of you know seek out kind of business mentoring and you know join groups and forums and kind of follow what everybody's doing and presets are very much a part of that you know i think Mm. people also tend to follow trends so you know at any given point there's just a whole bunch of trendy presets that are kind of like the go-to you know and i think people just feel the need to just get them just in the same way that you know they feel the need to have a camera kit you know it's kind of completely essential to most photographers and I think especially when you're new you know the idea of of making your own presets just isn't a thing you know I think people Mm. would much rather spend the time in their kind of branding or marketing or you know going on portfolio builders or all of those other things kind of take priority um and the editing side of things just kind of gets put to one side Mm -hmm. um and they almost just want it to be the fastest easiest thing possible and i think preset definitely advertises itself as being (laughs) that (laughs) Um, but we all know the reality is very different you know as soon as you bought them and installed them and you start using them uh, the reality is not that the reality is very much uh, that kind of cycle of frustration and self-doubt and that negative headspace which is (laughs) so commonplace with photographers but it doesn't need to be the case guys you know it it can be a a, a nice world where it's frustration free (laughs) (laughs) what world are you talking about what what are you talking about (laughs) (laughs) I, i should state that in in no way are are we criticizing other creatives for trying to make money, especially right now from from selling presets. But I have to ask: Do you think these presets are doing a disservice? Yeah, I mean, I think just I, I would never diss anybody that's selling presets out there. In fact, I'm working with two photographers who were my icons, um, and they're going to be selling those presets mass market. But the difference is, is sometimes you've got presets out there that are, that are definitely just bad. I mean, they're just bad. <laughs> There's no other way to put it. I mean, yeah. that's that's being polite, you know. I think I'm trying to be 
not naughty with my voice. If anybody knows me, people know I'm a potty mouth. <laughs> you can be naughty. It's fine. Be naughty. Yeah, Absolutely. We, we label fine. all these podcasts as explicit, so don't worry. <laughs> okay, yeah. There's a lot of shit out there, but there's no regulation. Mm. Um and I think, you know, there's also a lot of decent presets out there, you know. Um, some people come to me and they're like, you know, I'm using this preset. And actually, for the most part, I really like it. But maybe it's just the skin tones that are out. And I'm more than happy to sit there and just get that skin tone where that person wants it and not really change anything else. But I think the disservice comes down to, I think everybody's work deserves a signature edit and that doesn't need to be like the most stylized thing but I think everybody shoots in slightly different ways everybody's looking and using light in different ways so the you know the way that we're kind of analyzing those aspects of image making is to a high level you know but mm. the editing needs to be the same level. You know, we need to sit there and analyze exactly what we want to do with skin tone control or what we want to do with our color grading or, you know, all of those things. But just going onto a website and buying a preset, you know, it ultimately means that your work's going to look similar to everybody else who's bought that preset. And, and nobody wants that for their work. Surely not. I mean, that's where the disservice is, really. So mm. we're not dissing any presets out there, but <laughs> yeah. it's more a case of, you know, let's give our work what it deserves, really. Mm. Do you think there's like a, an appeal for photographers to feel like, yes, I'm now a part of the market that's like charging a good amount of money. So, you know, they, they, they buy the look, they put it on their work and they feel better about themselves in, in, in that regard. Yeah, I definitely think that's, that's a factor for sure. Um, <laughs> but whether the end result is, is what it is through the, <laughs> the use of that preset is a, is a different question altogether. You know, I, I've seen work from photographers that are fairly new and they, they, they've not actually bought any presets. You know, they've kind of gone at it on their own. Um, in Lightroom, trying to make their own style or whatever. And actually, sometimes that puts them in a way better uh, position than if they were to buy a preset out there. So yeah. although it is kind of a trendy thing and, and you do buy into, you know, all oh, this photographer's iconic and all oh, the presets are available for sale, you know, I'm going to get them and stick it on my work and hope for the best. You know, the reality is very, very different because, you know, um, it's kind of stating the obvious, but one preset doesn't respond the same on on everybody's work. You know, mm -hmm. uh, we're all shooting different. We're all using different cameras with different sensors that's recording color different. So the color is responding differently through that preset as well. So, you know, majority of the time when people are buying a preset that has been um, sold mass market, you know, often the reaction that they've got when they're using it is my work doesn't look like all of those images that, yeah. that sold me this preset. And that's exactly why. So, yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, what you're doing for people is you're designing something that saves photographers time and makes their work more consistent. And you've sort of touched on one or two of the benefits already, but what are the benefits of getting a custom-made preset compared to 
one of the mass market off-the-shelf ones? The benefits, I would say, is really kind of analysing what you want to do with every single aspect of colour and contrast in your final work. Um, But also, we look at how you're shooting and whether that is sort of giving you the end result that you're looking for because a lot of the time when I'm working with photographers they'll tell me they want a certain style and the way that they're shooting is not going to help them achieve that style so it's about kind of analyzing how we're shooting how we're using light and whether that is informing that signature style as well so it's a whole process where we look at shooting um for consistency and for the end result that you're looking for and then making that preset that's literally nailing every kind of control that you want in it but then beyond that you don't just use one preset you know you can't use one preset we know that when whenever anybody's bought a preset in the past you kind of have to sit and faff throughout all different line scenarios to get it to work Mm. so beyond that we then create a whole set of presets that are made for different lighting scenarios and all that kind of stuff just so the workflow is solid and obviously every time you're using those set presets so whether it's your golden hour preset or your backlit preset or your indoors preset every time that you're using that preset in those environments you're getting a very consistent end result across your entire portfolio so yeah the benefits are that it just ultimately is going to work for you and for how you shoot and for the end result that you're looking for you Mm. know and there's no compromises with any of that yeah (laughs) yeah it's actually really funny because obviously and we'll go into this a little bit more but you know having talked to emma lawson who's obviously one of your clients who you're working with um it's so interesting that you can shoot the wrong way in terms of color grading, which is quite interesting. I I remember back when, you know, we were very, very new and I, I, I learned, you know, how to become a kind of cool looking cinematographer, you know, with creating cinematic kind of shots. Yeah. And, um, you know, the big thing was like expose for the highlights, even in the darkest rooms, expose for the high, highlights. And I've kind of kept that, it's kind of a, a a look, and 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 the look of our films is very much backlit, you know. Unless obviously, you know, the you can't backlit everything. Yeah, you know, the emotional content needs to be captured as well as the cinematic stuff. But yeah, it's so interesting to hear that you can shoot in other ways, and that some ways don't work, and some ways do work in different scenarios. I find that super interesting. Yeah, hundred percent. And, you know, I'm working with, I can work with photographers who are absolutely just nailing everything. You just mentioned Emma there and she, mm. she obviously won't mind us mentioning her, but yeah, I mean, yes. she's, she's changed the way that she's shooting. Um, just cause it gives her much cleaner results, you know, some mm-hmm. of the frustrations that she was, uh, experiencing in in editing where she knew how to control it to get a cleaner result in editing whether it's grabbing the adjustment brush or whatever but obviously all of that's really time consuming and just changing up something small in the shooting side of things can massively save loads of time in editing and and free up time so that you're thinking about stuff that's more useful in editing you know Mm. um i 
I find it completely crazy that, you know, for the most part, photographers view editing as, you know, faffing with, you know, white balance, the temperature slider, the tint slider, <laughs> you know, highlights, white shadows, blacks, and then go into the HSL bit to start faffing with, with, you know, the oranges and whatever to get the skin tones right. You know, photographers view editing as that. But all of that should already be fixed and sorted within a decent preset. You know, editing should be much more about considering, you know, what what can you do to make that image the best image it can be? You know, what tools do you need to have, if any? You know, what are you going to do with cropping? Does it need cropping? Are you considering your composition? and your use of light, you know, mm-hmm. um, all of those things kind of get put on the back burner because we're too busy faffing with just basic sliders for 10 minutes, you know. So <laughs> it's, um, yeah. It, the other positive is that it gives you that mental shift, you know. Actually, we stop thinking about all that stuff and start questioning other stuff that's going to really kind of maybe level up the work a little bit. Oh, definitely. Uh, and we are going to get talking a little bit after um, our next sponsored ad about, you know, working with presets and really shooting with your color in mind. But I want to just pivot ever so slightly. You mentioned Capture One and you mentioned Lightroom. And it reminds me of a conversation that I overheard you talk. I can't even remember what the room was, obviously. But you kind of dissed Lightroom a little bit. In fact, it, it wasn't even a little bit. It was <laughs> so aggressively anti-Lightroom. Um, <laughs> it was it was amazing. Um, and it's so funny because obviously I, I use Lightroom. I know many other people use Lightroom. Yeah, it's probably the most popular. It is. It, yeah. Talk about the differences between, say, Capture One and Lightroom. Because it just sounds absolutely crazy that the, the software that most people use is so flawed. Yeah. <laughs> we're gonna have like people from adobe listening to this i know is this <laughs> well we like to have open and honest conversations on this podcast so um yeah go for it yeah Unleash. i mean yeah i'm totally honest about this i mean everybody that i work with will have heard me say this um and i think before i get into what lightroom isn't great at Let's just talk about the image making process in itself. So mm-hmm. what we do is we buy the kit that we want to shoot, yeah? And yep. then we take some images and then we need to process those files. And of course, um, Lightroom is the industry standard. It's what most of us are using. That's why I built this program around. And when we import our files into Lightroom or into any bit of software, you know, any any software that, that processes raw files, there is algorithms in place. So it's how that software is reading the information captured in that file and how it's processing that to then generate the image on screen. And the way that Lightroom's doing that <laughs> isn't the best <laughs> at all. Okay. So it actually, it, it, one of the things that Lightroom does bad is the fact that it de- it decides on whether it wants to change the color balance of the image before we see it. So, you know, 
and, and many people have experienced this, especially if you call in an external program, whether it's for mechanic, fast row viewer, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. You know, you could be viewing your images in there. You could get really excited over an image and the kind of color tones in the raw file before you've even touched it. And then you bring it into Lightroom and you're like, oh, it kind of doesn't look the same, you know. Um, that's exactly what I'm talking about. It is essentially processing the colour information in a specific way. And Lightroom doesn't do the best job of that, you know. Capture mm-hmm. One is far superior where that's concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that it's reading that information and rendering that file um, is way better. You know, a lot of these softwares also have like built-in you know, noise reduction, sharpening, whatever, whatever they deem as an important necessary element to have in that, that processing. Um, and again, Lightroom's falling down in those areas as well, whereas Capture One is, is really good with that. <laughs> so yeah, just on that very basic, you know, that first import, the first time that we're going to see our images before editing it, you know, um, Lightroom isn't that great. And it's, it's actually one of the worst because <laughs> oh, there's lots of other software that, that you can put your raw files into to start editing, you know, uh-huh. as DxO, um, which is a great bit of software and full suite editor. Mm-hmm. And they even do it better than, better than Lightroom. So yeah, it's, um, so <laughs> we're ha- falling down at the first hurdle with, uh, with Adobe Lightroom, I'm afraid. Yeah, that that's that that's crazy to me because it is the industry standard. You think it would, yeah. You know, you think it would have standards on, you know, right at the start. How how's it become yeah. so popular then? Is it just marketing? Is it just the big company putting the software out there, or? Yeah, I mean, it, it probably is that, you know, um, Adobe are very, very good in lots of areas. Um, you know, obviously there's no denying that the Photoshop is king when it comes to if we want to do anything extra, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's lots of things that they're pioneering with, you know. We're not, I'm not just going to sit here and dis, dis Adobe. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> not at all. But there's just definite, um, you know, things that they've, completely just, uh, you know, kind of ignored and not given the full attention to. And a lot of it is is around like colour profiles as well, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Adobe want everybody to be using their colour profiles and, and how they want colour to look. Um, so that does play a role. And although that's really good in some bits of software of theirs, uh, not so <laughs> much in, in others. Um, yeah. So, yeah, there's a whole world of stuff in terms of like, you know, image making and colouring within our images that that most photographers aren't even really considering. You know, it absolutely blows my mind that photographers spend loads of money on kit. You know, let's get this camera that's amazing and it's got this sensor on it and whatever. But then ultimately, they don't even care about what software they're even putting that yeah. file through in, in, in that sort of final stage or uh, in the crucial stage of image making, really, because it's, it's how we're utilizing that information of what we've captured and, and getting the best results from that. I mean, the rabbit hole is really deep with this stuff. A lot of photographers would just be like, 
like, you know, I don't know what you're on about. Like uh, <laughs> everything in Lightroom just looks really all right to me and I get yeah. really decent results or whatever. And that's great for a lot of people. If that's the case, then there's no issue, is there? If you were happy with your work, then that's fine. But the reality for many is that there's lots of things that just don't respond in the way that photographers want them to you know they really struggle getting a control over color or what the file looks like or you know any of those things and it's there's lots of these little factors Mm. that that play directly into that frustration you know so and look like as filmmakers like you know we use uh, premiere pro that still has its issues like when we export a file the colors completely change. They desaturate. Yeah. All, all sorts of stuff happens to to the image, and, and you're just like, I, "This is this is not like you." You spend all this time color grading, and then yeah. it's not how it is when it comes out at the other end, and yeah. it's really annoying. And you know, you have to use like an export lot, but still, that doesn't. That's not precise enough for me, and I'm never happy when I when when I use it. So even you know, Premiere Pro. And I feel like, I'm sorry, I feel like I am bashing Adobe because I, I, you know. <laughs> but we use it and yeah. it's it's the thing we're quickest at using, mm. but it's not optimized for Mac. It's It's got all these flaws, <laughs> like you need to gamma correct on export and everything. Yeah. But we still use it because it does have good points that work the way we like to work. So yeah. Yeah, it's and, just uh, the same in both in photography and filmmaking. And I'm going to make so many people cringe when I say this, but I actually edit the podcast on Premiere Pro. <laughs> I should use Audition, but I don't. So I know. Yeah. How can people get the most out of their editing pro- platform, whether it is Capture One or Lightroom? They just, we just need to really kind of strip it back and understand that the, every single step in image making, you know, and analyze it. At every single point because you know even I mean let's just talk about the most common issue that's been so pre- like massive in recent years everybody's jumped ship to Sony <laughs> so a lot of Canon users went to Sony mm-hmm. and then absolutely shit themselves when it comes to editing they just could not edit anymore the trusty preset that they used for many years just didn't look anything remotely similar on the Sony files mm. and that's down to how the sensors recording color initially is vastly different across cameras so you know a lot of that's actually kept me really busy in recent years so thank Thanks for that big Sony boom. (laughs) Everybody panicked and came to me and was like, you know, holy shit, I can't edit anymore. Can you help? And I was like, yeah, sure. Let's, let's do it. Um, So, yeah, I mean, everybody's, a lot of people have kind of experienced that. And then like on photography groups, you'll find that, that, you know, people who maybe have shot Nikon went to Sony and those guys are like, I haven't seen any difference. Well, Sony make Nikon sensors. So we've got the same coloring going on across those. So of course we're not going to see any difference, but the Canon versus Sony or Nikon sensors are mega different. And, you know, across the industry, it's commonplace that a lot of photographers might have second 
second shooters, you know. So you might have a Sony kit, but you, the second shooter that you really love the work of, that you trust working with, might be a Canon shooter. Yeah. When it comes to editing those files in one big chunk, I mean, that's just a recipe for a disaster unless we understand what the differences actually are. And once we understand what the differences are and we put the control in place, it becomes mega easy. So it's about really kind of, you know, analyzing every single point. You know, what are we shooting? How's it capturing color? How are we using light? What are we then doing in editing? What's the software doing for us? Is it doing anything negative that might throw us off base? Because it absolutely does in Lightroom, (laughs) (laughs) Um, as I just mentioned, Mm. you know, and understanding that as well. you know, and there's a lot of bugs as well with Lightroom, which I just find mind blowing. You know, all of us, all of us in this room are potentially paying for that monthly subscription. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, the, I mean, it's insane that there would just be consistent bugs. I mean, you know, the there's massive one at the minute. I don't know if anybody's experienced it, but on export, if you've got any, if you put any grain on your images in Lightroom on export, that grain's going to be like. 10, 20 times as much as you thought it was. <laughs> um, oh my and God. you're just like, I mean, how are you meant to control that? How are you meant to understand what it's going to do on export? I mean, yeah. and you end up sitting there trying to guess. It's mainly guesswork. You're like, okay, so I'll just put 2% grain in and hope for the best on export. You know, it's just mind boggling. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy it, it, stuff. It's actually really funny because at this point, if you're a filmmaker and you use Premiere Pro, it's kind of a meme at the at the moment, like that you sh- just should not be using it because it has so many bugs, which I find yeah. really hilarious yeah. that, you know, it's been this way for years. It's yeah. so bizarre. but And we kind of just accept it, don't we? We're like, well, what else are we going to use? Yeah. What else? You know, we only understand our workflow within these bits of software, but... I think the the whole market's going to change with that, you know. Mm. Um, lots of people are asking me about Capture One and switching to Capture One. And yeah. I'm a massive advocate for Capture One, so I'm all about that at the minute. I'm like, yes, let's <laughs> all go to Capture One. <laughs> um, but you did ask me before about the differences, and, and yeah. I mentioned about that, that first import and the differences there. But there's lots of other differences, you know. Um, we just had a joke there about the grain bug at the minute in Lightroom. Mm. Um, so grain and shot sharpening and and you know these tools that are, are essential for us they're just so unresponsive in Lightroom or the buggy as hell whereas in Capture One the responsiveness of it is just you know exactly what you expect and you can visibly see as well on screen what you're going to get in that end result whether it's on the client gallery or whether it's you know what you've sent to the lab for printing so you've got a real um it's more refined and you've got way better control over the essential stuff <laughs> as well as all of the extra stuff that it does great as well. So mm. yeah, no brainer for me. Yeah. Clubhouse listeners, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, this is just a Q&A reminder. There will be a Q&A section at the end of the podcast so you can ask Amy Lee anything you want. But yeah, if you're if you're listening, if you're not listening on Clubhouse and you aren't a member of our Patreon, you are leaving some amazing content on the table because the Q&A section, if you didn't catch it live, is only available 
on our Patreon. So, uh, patreon.com forward slash perspective by Cinemate, if you want to listen back to the Q&A section. However, Greg, let's listen to Ashley Baxter. With Jack was designed from the ground up and is tailored specifically for creatives. Whether you provide a service like design, development or photography or offer advice to clients, With Jack is for you. It's focused on creatives. Insurance shouldn't be complicated, so With Jack has made every step easy. You'll deal with one form and talk to one Jack as you sign up, get covered and move on with your day. With Jack is all about bespoke insurance for creatives. Simple. That doesn't mean more forms are faff, it means less. It's not about endless features and stale service. It's about one solid policy and the personal touch. Bye-bye, unnecessary fuss. Hello, creative-friendly insurance. Be a confident creative. So I should say, blah, 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 I should say before we continue that I did actually work with Emma Lawson to create some of these uh, notes in the post-production of this episode. So she has given us permission to talk about, you know, her work. And um, so, yes, thank you, Emma. But those reds, am I, am I right, Amy Lee? Oh. <laughs> the reds. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, I burst out laughing so hard when, I, when you were <laughs> ripping into her reds. Yeah. I mean, there was nothing else to rip into, let's be honest. The work yeah. is incredible. I know, I know. But I was like, those reds need to go. Yeah. Like. <laughs> and and we've, we've done it. I mean, it looks incredible now. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Well, obviously, knowing I was going to speak to you, I had to ask Emma for help um, just because, you know, I can imagine the the synergy between you m- m- would have to be quite high to, to work on, you know, presets, especially when you represent someone else's brand. But I did find it really interesting, and I, I touched on this earlier, that she said that um, it, it, it's made her see, as established photographer, things that she wouldn't have seen without having you worked on her presets, which I thought was kind of incredible. So what should people look for in terms of how we shoot when we think about colouring? You know, how, how, how can we shoot better with colour in mind? So it is entirely style dependent, which I'm I'm sure that is stating the obvious really, isn't it? But, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, obviously the way that uh, a photographer in kind of like the moodier, earthy style mm-hmm. is going to shoot is entirely the opposite of, of somebody who's, you know, light and airy. Um, and it's about understanding your camera and metering modes and whether that, is working in the way that you as a photographer is chasing light, you know? Mm-hmm. And there has to be a synergy between those things. And you have to understand that, you know, and really make decisions on every single point of that. You know, you've got to make a decision as well as a photographer when you're shooting. You know, how are you shooting in terms of exposure? If you're shooting underexposed, what does that mean then to your shadows and the colours in shadows? And what I mean by that is is colours in shadows are often more saturated. So how are we going to then, you know, tackle that afterwards in the preset Mm -hmm. so all of those things really 
play factors and it's kind of like I always view this the best way I can describe it is it's a little bit like cooking you know you go to you have your shopping list you go to a supermarket you buy your ingredients and then you've got to put those together in a, a specific way you know but but then we know that there's like hundreds of recipes to create the same dish you know, but all of them are going to have like little different nuances to them. It's exactly the same when it comes to image making and the shooting versus editing process, you know. So you've got to really think about that side of things. And, and that's why in this program that I run, we do put a massive emphasis on shooting and what are we doing there? And it's not only about like shooting for, for color. Um, it's about creating your signature shooting style, you know, just as much as we're going to sit there and figure out what your signature editing style is. We need to understand what our signature shooting style is. If I said to everybody in this room, you know, what, Describe to me what your signature shooting style is through your use of aperture. What what would be the answer? You know, would most photographers say I'm I shoot f two point eight or wider all day until we get to group shots, <laughs> and then I up it a little bit, and then I go back to two point eight or wider all day. <laughs> Guilty. <You know? laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> And if that is the answer, is that a considered thing or is that something that you've fallen into because everybody else is doing that, you know? Mm-hmm. And so we literally just, it's about questioning things, you know? I think there's a lot of things that until we ask a question, we don't necessarily sit there and, and think, you know, I'm actively doing it this way because that's the way I I choose to do it for this reason. Mm. I think a lot of the time we just kind of fall into habitual methods of doing stuff. And I'm definitely guilty of that. You know, before I was a wedding and elopement photographer, I shot a lot in Africa for charities. And when I was walking around Africa with my kit, you know, I wasn't shooting everything 2.8 or wider, put it that way. But as yeah. soon as I became a wedding or elopement photographer, that's exactly what I did. Now, whether that's because we think of like the professional image, quote unquote, as as having the blurry background with the boker, you know, and we've got mm. paying clients for that. Does that play a role in why we all do that? I'm not sure, you know, mm. but it's, it's about really questioning every single thing that we do in both the shooting and the editing side of things, just as much as we do with, you know, we sit there and we, we kind of go on courses to figure out our branding and go through big processes to nail that side of things but the editing and the shooting side of things for many photographers is kind of just like a almost like and many photographers won't mind me saying this but we're kind of just winging it (laughs) 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 and actually that's the products that we're selling you know yeah so it's uh yeah winging it they get to a certain level and then it's successful and they think, okay, I'm, I'm good actually, but they've not went into the nitty gritty of the details. But in terms of taking control of your editing, I'm going to say, where do you think most photographers go wrong? But I don't, I don't mean they're going wrong. I just mean like, where are they sort of letting slip, I guess? Is it not thinking about the edit when they're shooting, like what you're saying? Or is it those white balance and exposure sliders, they're wasting too much time there? 
Yeah, I would say definitely in the shooting side of things, it's where uh, that's the first step. It kind of goes wrong for a lot of photographers. But in saying that, I've worked with lots of photographers that are really good shooters. You know, they've got all everything that they could dream of in terms of like the raw file. And then they just overthink it then in the editing process and maybe go too far with the editing um, because they feel like they maybe need to. Um, so there's lots of different aspects, but definitely the shooting side of things is, is where um, most photographers kind of go wrong. It's the, you know, I get many photographers coming to me for that kind of cinematic look mm-hmm. um, and they're just not utilising light in the same way or, on the flip side of that, I get lots of photographers that are very much kind of just middle of the road, kind of very clean, timeless kind of style, mm-hmm. um, who pride themselves on being like fully documentary, you know, all about taking that narrative filled image and those action shots, all that kind of stuff. And they come to me um, for custom presets and um, I always get people to fill out a form and it's super awkward. People hate it. It's not the easiest form to fill out, but I do it like that for a reason. It's because it's to get people to start thinking about these things mm-hmm. uh, uh, in terms of like what they want to do with exposure, what they want to do with skin tone control. All those kind of questions are in the form, basically. But one of them is... Um, what are the photographers that you like the editing style of? And a lot of documentary photographers will come through and they'll... They'll name like icons, um, you know, people like Andrew Billington or Two Man as like, mm. you know, their, their go to. Obviously, kings, queens of documentary action shots. Yep. And then I'll be looking at the files afterwards and I'm like, so you've not sent me one raw file <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's above 2.8. So where's the story across? Same here, you know, like what, <laughs> if you look at Andrew's work, you know, we're definitely shooting up at the F8, F11 for a lot of them. So where are those? And for some reasons, you know, they might think it's the editing that's the, the problem um, as to why they're not achieving that kind of finished, polished image that they're looking for. But actually, it could be something so simple as the aperture use in shooting isn't the thing that's giving them that narrative story filled image, mm. but only at the point of actually having a conversation about it. Would it be, you know, um, obvious to them? Because like I said, I think a lot of us just fall into a habitual way of doing things. And I think just as much as we sit down and create like end of year blog posts or we do our audits in terms of sales and income for the year and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, we never kind of sit there and go, you know, I'm going to sit and look at my images and just see what it is that's not quite working for me or what I want to improve on, mm. you know. So it's definitely the shooting side that's the first downfall. Yeah. Um, do, you, so, do, you, do you think when, when, when talking about like, um, I mean, I don't want to, Stereotype. I'm assuming that most photographers shoot prime lenses, and the reason you'd probably shoot prime lenses is probably because that those prime lenses have a lower aperture. Um, so, do you think again? Not that the market says this, but in most cases, the wider the aperture, um, that that lower number comes with a price tag. So, when they invest in a lens that is like a, a one point two. 
Um, yeah. Even though that's crazy wide, do you think they're, they feel more enticed to shoot to try and not recuperate some of the cost of the lens? But uh, do you know what I'm trying to say here? Yeah. I mean, that's what those lenses do best, isn't it? So, yeah. of course, if you buy it and you're investing in kit that does that, then you're going to want to maximise on that. But does that mean that every single image you take afterwards is is completely, you know, maximising on that and separation between subjects and background? And is that a signature style that mm. you've got that's uh, intrinsic to your work? Because for some photographers, it doesn't mean that, you know. Um, and also, I'm really interested in how the viewer views images. So, like, um, part of my background is I did a master's in philosophy of visual culture and how people read images and art. It was completely irrelevant. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) And, um, and, um, yeah, it was a bit of a waste of time, but I found it completely interesting. My dream was to, like, own a gallery and be a curator and talk loads of pretentious shit about art (laughs) for days on end. But anyway, that didn't happen. But, um... (laughs) It is interesting it's kind of, and it's totally relevant to what we do, you know, in terms of like, did we deliver to the client? And it's interesting when you've got, I mean, just let's just pause on that for a second. The, the mad concept of a client pays loads of money for uh, images that capture the, the best day of their life. And yet we go and deliver those images in a gallery grid so they just view it as like you know thumbnails and we can choose big thumbnails if want but essentially it's just a grid of images that are quite small I mean that in itself just verbalizing it is the craziest concept but anyway that's just the way it is now that's how we're delivering to client yeah and what's really interesting about that is when you as the viewer when you were looking through a set of images If all of them are the same, um, so say, for example, shot 2.8 wider, we've got the bokeh in every image, yeah? Um, What happens is the viewer then automatically fills in that the next row of images and the next row of images as they're scrolling through automatically has a blurry background. So all they're looking at is subject matter and moment, but they're looking in a very passive way because they've already kind of half filled in the image. So they're not looking at the full image in its entirety, how you've crafted it and how you've sat there editing it. It's all lost, you know, it's just about subject to moment. Um, whereas if you change it up a little bit, uh, where it can't be predictable. So say, for example, you say, you know, a whole bunch of shots in the way that, you know, we're maximising on the separation between, subjects and background where it makes sense to do that and then we've got a whole bunch of images as well that are thrown in there where we've kind of you know we've got definition and context across the frame what it does is it means that the viewer can passively look they can't predict what's coming next they can't fill it in so they have to actively look at each row of images throughout that kind of grid that they're scrolling through and there's been loads of studies on this there's loads of theories on it um so i always think that's such a valid interesting thing because you know do you want your work to be kind of passively looked at do you want it to be you know an active looking for the viewer 
because mm. the two are very different. And we all experience this. You know, if you go on to somebody's blog post and their signature style is that they're shooting like that with their aperture, you know, you'll get, you kind of start scrolling faster towards the end because it's all very repetitive. Yeah. <laughs> And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. You know, there's lots of photographers where I've had this conversation with them and they're like, you know, they'll go and explore doing something different with their aperture. Um, and then they'll come back to me and they'll be like, Amy, that's not for me. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to continue shooting 2.8 or wider because I like the look of that. And I'm like, that's fine because at least it's been you know, 100% considered and you know that that's the way that you want it. But I've probably had equal or more photographers come back to me and got uh, and have said, actually, maybe that's where I was going wrong, you know, mm. actually like the look of this. And, um, you know, it, it's we've got to explore and figure out what our signature style is through yeah. just simple camera settings. It can't just be a, you know, let's just fall into this habitual way of doing things and not really have that consideration afterwards because, you know, the amount of like, I mean, I see thousands of raw files from photographers all over the world. And, you know, I've seen some cracking action shots where we've got like groomsmen doing the limbo or having like vodka poured into his mouth and there's like <laughs> chaos happening around him, but it's been shot at like, f2 and we're like no <laughs> you know yeah. so there's no right or wrong with this but understanding that and you know for some people they've never thought about that you know beyond oh just let's get prime lenses and and shoot it like this um i was one of them you know yeah. it's been a process for me too That's so really yeah interesting how the client views the photos or how the end customer views them that's really interesting yeah jumping back to the tech obviously there's loads of camera bodies being released constantly and there's different lenses how much of an impact does the lens and the camera have on your coloring and what's this sort of how does it differ between each brand because you talked about the sony boom a wee while ago mm. so how's that yeah how does that change between each camera and lens i would say the lens differences are so small but the the sensor differences on camera is is the the key thing really um and it differs massively um so not only in terms of color so we know that um coloring can shift across different camera brands canon nikon sony fuji um, but also you know just contrast levels dynamic range is different as well so if you are starting off point is where we've got a whole but and it obviously it depends on how we're shooting that camera as well you know what metering mode we're shooting in in terms of how much contrast we're then getting in the raw file um that all of that plays a role in that editing process because you know a lot of people for example come to me and they'll want quite a a really contemporary contrasty punch to the work mm-hmm. but then the shooting in a metering mode that's ultimately flattening contrast you know um so that's kind of working in the opposite way that that photographer is wanting to work so mm-hmm. it's not even just in a coloring realm it's about you know contrast as well and and use of light is is everything as well i guess um but yeah, very different across uh, the the camera brands in terms of color. You know, Fuji pretty much 
the the colours in the raw are very very you know true to reality. There's literally zero going wrong with mm. that, and I think a lot of Fuji shooters appreciate that mm. in their kit. That's one of the things that they love, um, especially if they've come from like the filmic, you know, being interested in film. Um, a lot of those people love Fuji, and it's probably for that reason as well. Yeah. Um, whereas you know, Canon's a little bit true to reality adds a bit of saturation and then you've got Nikon and Sony that are just way off <laughs> way <laughs> off the spectrum in terms of what it's doing with yellows greens we're talking like neon out of space shit going on um <laughs> so yeah it uh we definitely need to identify that and really control it in the preset build because yeah. that's your only way to control it really but mm. yeah certain brands obviously uh you know have like you said, like like Sony, like how how, how does the sensor get to be that way? Because is it intentional? I've literally no idea. I don't know what what the answer is to that. Yeah. I think just in the same way that you know um, Adobe has made its own color profiles and Capture One's doing something different with with its file rendering as well and how it's treating that information captured on the sensor. You know these camera brands are definitely you know they sit there and. Obviously, they're trying to focus on the technical, um, you know, getting as many megapixels in there as possible and all that. But yeah, I just think the guys at Sony were drunk one day with, when it came to yellow and green. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they just love that. And the thing is, you know, all when it comes to like color theory, we all have preferences, you know. Um, some people I work with really cannot stand a neutral base of colour or a magenta base of colour. Mm -hmm. They have to work on the yellow green side of the spectrum. Uh, and it's just in the same way that, you know, generally across styles, some of us prefer warmer images, some of us prefer cooler images, or some yeah. of us just want to keep it neutral. So I think it, it I don't know whether it's so much as a, as a brand thing, but they've obviously sat there and, and, and done the best that they could with that. But mm -hmm. yeah, it's just a little bit off. I don't know whether that's because we're so used to maybe what the other brands have done first or, or whatever, but um, yeah, it's just vastly different. So we need to be understanding that and controlling that. Mm -hmm. And um yeah, the way you would do that actually is in the calibration box in, in Lightroom, right at the bottom of the develop module. It used to be called camera calibration. Oh, yeah, okay. And the amount of photographers I work with, and they're like, I've never used that, or I don't know what that is, or I avoid it, or maybe they use it as another way to just manipulate the color grading in their images or whatever. Mm. But that's where I start making presets, and it's just about identifying what camera the photographer's shooting mm -hmm. and what needs be needs to be corrected with how the sensors recorded color it yeah. needs to be put in that box you know so obviously nikon sony we're on that green primary slide we're plus 30 <laughs> minus 30 on those it is crazy yeah and <laughs> so I, there's my top tip for uh, yeah. sony nikon shooters and obviously we are talking about color here you know canon sony nikon like a uh, panasonic the like all these cameras have their strengths and their flaws. So we're just talking about color. So we're not yeah. Sony bashing because, you know, Sony are really great cameras. They have, you know, and, and that goes with, you know, Canon and, you know, even if they overheat, you know, Panasonic with their IBIS, like all these cameras uh, have a strengths and weaknesses. 
Um, yeah. Do, do you find a lot of people, photographer-wise, use Panasonic for their images? And I'm only asking because I've kind of just delved into buying one for my own and documenting my kids and stuff. So I, I'm using the Panasonic S5. But having shot with Canon a lot, I, I, I feel like the 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 images and the colors I'm getting from the Panasonic are actually pretty amazing. But it could, yeah. again, it could just be me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I've not worked with many people that shoot, shoot Panasonic. Um, I've worked with, obviously, all of the main four brands. I've shot, mm-hmm. I've worked with lots of people that have uh, upgraded the kit to full Leica systems. Those guys are clearly earning too much money, by the way. <laughs> I was going to say, woofed. <laughs> Um, and then right up to you know people using the Hasselblad systems as well Um, and yeah I mean we're not we're not bashing any any camera brand at all you know I I can talk (laughs) shit about Sony um, because I'm a Sony shooter myself Um, so yeah it's it's not necessarily about um, the the actual camera I think the most important thing there is um, just making sure that you get a kit that you're comfortable with Mm -hmm. but also understanding how that kit works I mean the amount of photographers that I've worked with that did jump ship to Sony and aren't maximizing on the settings that are that make the Sony kit great, you know. I'm mm-hmm. like, so why are we doing this? And they're like, well, I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> and I'm like, come on. <laughs> yeah. It's just, uh, you know, so I think it's more about that. So ultimately, it doesn't really matter what you shoot. It's, we need to just be understanding what is happening with that file, whether anything needs to be corrected before we, you know, go into the whole editing side of things. So if you're happy with your, you know, your Panasonic colors, um, then that's obviously, you know, putting you in a, in a positive position there. <laughs> where <it's laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's all about knowing how to use the file because as you said, the, the images off the Sony sensor are, are way off color-wise, yeah. but you know what sliders to change to get them right for you. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's not about, you know, if anybody's listening and thinking, well, what do I change? You know, how do I tackle that? How do I fix it? You know, all you need to do is a simple common sense process of of look at, just look at the raw file. You know, you were there when you shot that scene. So you know exactly what it should have looked like. So it's about using the sliders in that calibration box mm-hmm. to get it looking as realistic as possible. But don't be afraid to really move it you know I think another thing that that kind of throws photographers off when it does come to editing and kind of faffing on sliders is that they're kind of um, afraid to go too far with it a lot of the time and I think this is probably more uh, more so when it comes to white balance you know I think a lot of photographers kind of assume auto white balance is, is sort of right but then we all know that we're every most images we're going to be on that temperature slider so why we assume that it is sort of right is is kind of insane in itself but we all know that we're going to nudge it a little bit um (laughs) and sometimes we don't nudge it enough um so again it's about you know just having a bit more confidence in what we're doing um and not not so much trusting the software (laughs) to help with that because Often it doesn't help us, or the hardware, for example, with the sensors. Well, let's get on to talking about a little bit 
more focus on on how we should be doing stuff. Uh, obviously, like you said, you know, it kind of it, it does vary, and you need to think about all these things when you're making an image. But just quickly, getting to basics, camera settings. What what profile should we be shooting in? Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like you know. Yeah, it, it's all it's it's style dependent, isn't it? Um, so I I mean, with the Fuji guys, there's a lot of Fuji shooters, and they love shooting in classic chrome, and that gives a certain look, especially if you want in the filmic vibe. I totally get that, and with Fuji shooters, I do um, sort of. I do kind of promote that in a way. Uh, but the rest of us, we just need to be shooting completely neutral in terms of profiles. You know, don't faff around with it. When it comes into Lightroom, by default, it's going to be changed to Adobe Colour, yeah. um, which isn't the best at all. <laughs> so at that point, that's where you kind of have to go into that calibration mm. section and really look at it and just ultimately try and get the raw file that you're seeing as realistic as possible get the greens looking really realistic and like i say it's a massive shift you know if you're a sony or a nikon shooter you're looking at plus 30 minus 30 on those green primary sliders um very minimal on the red and the, the blue so that'll put you in a good starting position only at that point then should you be looking at applying a preset or doing any form of like you know, manipulating colour or whatever, because you, you're starting off on a very neutral, realistic base. You're not starting off on a base that's potentially got these crazy neon as fuck greens, you know, that's going to ultimately just throw off whatever you're trying to do on the green HSL. You know, people really struggle getting like the greens that they want is, is a common issue. Um, <laughs> and it is down to that in, 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 um, you know, in the first place. So, yeah, um, keep it completely neutral. I'd say more so important than than like colour profiles because we can always kind of correct that afterwards anyway. Um, but just make sure that you're shooting in the right metering mode and that that metering mode is working for the style that you're looking for. Yeah. Because that is the biggest thing that a lot of people change when I'm working with photographers. So, you know, if you're somebody that feels like your work is quite flat and doesn't have as much contrast in it. And then in editing, you're putting in lots of contrast or you're manipulating the light in editing, you know, with maybe the brush or the radial filter or the graduated filters, then the metering mode you're shooting in is not working in the same way that you are trying to use light as a photographer. Yeah. So understand that first, you know. For most photographers, um, from kind of... Anybody that isn't the light and airy realm, you know, we should be in either spot metering or any metering mode that's kind of like that or better. <laughs> <laughs> so like I shoot Sony, so I'm in highlights metering mode, but that's not available to any other camera user. Um, Canon don't have that. Nikon don't have that. Um, so, yeah, figure out what the metering mode is on your cameras, what's available to you, shoot in it, experiment with them, figure out what's giving you the best results that you want in terms of the raw image before you start editing it. Because that's that's the, the key thing. That's where everybody kind of goes a little bit wrong. Um, yeah. should, should photographers be choosing the metering mode based on the style that they're aiming to deliver or should they change it throughout the day depending on the lighting situation? Oh, 
it depends depends on the photographer. So if you're somebody that's worked with me, uh, what we do is um, I, for the most part, would say to most people to keep in that kind of spot metering realm, because in your custom preset set, you will have a preset that's going to pull back shadows in a backlit scenario if we've gone for highlights. Um, but for other photographers, um, it it entirely depends. They might feel really uncomfortable shooting in spot metering for certain parts of the day. Maybe it's a ceremony situation where we've got behind the couple where we're stood as a primary shooter behind the couple. There might be a big window letting in loads of light. Well, spot metering is not going to be easy. You know, in that scenario, we're going to need to use exposure compensation. Mm. So it, for some photographers, they're like, you know, if that's the first time, that they've been thinking about metering modes or what they're doing there, um, then that's going to be really tricky for them to do. So for those guys, I just say, you know, we'll stay in the average metering mode. So depending on what you're shooting, it does change its name. So Canon, it's evaluative, Nikon, Matrix, Sony, Multi, Fuji, Average. <laughs> you know, for those guys, it's about switching back to that metering mode to gain more control in trickier scenarios. So it depends on the photographer and what that photographer feels comfortable with. Mm. Um, I'm just really lazy. I feel like my camera's like point and shoot. Like <laughs> <laughs> I don't even care if it's half black. When, <laughs> when I'm, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, and I that, understand the magic in editing. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, it's actually really funny being filmmakers and working alongside some photographers that you know try and um capture uh, sorry try to kind of retain as much uh, information in the highlights so they they shoot really dark and then you know the couple will be like oh can we see them and then they're having to like <laughs> show them the screen and the ho- i've seen some horrific faces of couples being like i can't, I can't even see anything jeff i can't even see this image Shocking, <laughs> and the photographer is obviously just having to kind of like explain the tech and how he has to shoot darker. It's it's quite a funny thing. But yeah, like I said, as filmmakers, one thing that we have to do all the time is well, we don't have to do, but a big thing for us is to um, select our chosen white balance, especially if there's like a scene that's more documentary. So there's maybe two or three camera angles. Um, you know, you don't want each camera guessing what white balance is in a particular room because then you'll have to spend hours in post correcting that. So yeah. for photographers out there, um, how should they set their white balance? Avoid auto white balance <laughs> at all costs. I was hoping you'd say that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So it's actually the only thing on my whole program that I actually bully people into. I'm like, you've signed up to this. If you do not do this, you will not get the end results that you're looking for. It's that simple. Um, So, yeah, I'm a massive advocate of shooting a manual Kelvin. Yeah. Um, It's a little bit of a a hurdle for for some photographers, especially if you're reliant on what it looks like on the back of the camera. So I just uh, talk about shooting one temperature. Everything is shot at the same temperature so that when we come into post-production, we can batch edit each section of the day. So not only is it mega quick, but also the consistency that you get with that is massive. Um, 
auto white balance has never helped anybody let's be honest the amount of <laughs> time wasted on that temperature slider and um auto white balance you know it's built to balance and neutralize light all the time and in a lot of scenarios we don't want that as a photographer you know if we're shooting golden hour how often do we shoot that and if we've shot it in auto white balance it looks a lot less golden but then we're like it's fine we're gonna warm it up afterwards anyway you know (laughs) (laughs) it's just crazy yeah but also it really fucks with skin tones and all sorts of stuff that just just makes editing hard so for our listeners out there who do struggle with the idea of like setting your your manual white balance, how how do they do that? Is it okay to just keep with the sun logo on their dial? Mm, right. Well, <laughs> <laughs> no. So light. One of the things that Lightroom does really bad is it has within the algorithm where it's kind of um, rendering that that image that we then see on screen. It's questioning whether it wants to change the color balance of an image. And where it does that is actually on the tint slider. So it's Mm. completely unrelated to any form of, say, manual tint that you could put in in camera settings. Mm. So you would assume that if, you know, you decided to put your white balance and shift it to mega pink, yeah, that on import it would show those kind of... uh, you know, that we put it towards the pink side of things on that tint slider because it's team with the temperature slider. So you assume that's the four squares that we have control over in camera, but it absolutely isn't. It's completely unrelated to camera and, and what we put in there. Um, that's where it's basically manipulating the color balance on import. So it's, changing if if we've say got a a green scene and often you know a lot of us will shoot in a green scene we'll put our couple amongst some trees on green grass whatever you know often you know if you look at any of your images in Lightroom raw files of that type of scene you will always see that tint slider on the pink side Mm. And it's because it's identified you know there's loads of green in this image we're going to stick a bit of pink in there so it's tried to manipulate that and neutralize it a little bit. Obviously, we understand it's very green sea because that's where we've shot. That's the location. Um, but yeah, because it does that, it often gets it wrong. Now, I've seen files where that tint slider is up at like the plus 50, plus 70, and it's caused a real color cast on the file. And you can be looking at an image going, that looks really pink, but obviously that's wrong. That's not what it looks like when I was there shooting it. Mm. And it's because of this import algorithm that's just totally bananas. Um, So because of that, I only recommend shooting in the manual Kelvin, the K symbol. I don't recommend shooting in any of the the program modes, whether it's cloudy, shady, sunny, whatever. Mm. And the reason for that is because if you shoot in the Kelvin, it completely eradicates this issue with Lightroom. It just completely tricks that import algorithm and it stops it doing anything. Mm. So when you shoot the manual Kelvin, every single file you import that's shot at the same temperature will show as the exact same point on that tint slider so it'll become a redundant issue you won't have files that have potentially got color casts on them on either the the green or the magenta side of things so it is for that reason that i only recommend the k shooting the manual kelvin over mm-hmm. one of the other ones um 
but the Kelvin that you shoot at is again, it's style dependent. Um, I personally shoot everything at 5,500. Hmm. Um, 5,560 is daylight. Um, but some Canon users can't set the 5560. Hmm. <laughs> so I switched <laughs> to 5,500 because that's camera universal. Everybody can set that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and obviously if you're going to adopt this method of, of shooting, you know, it's imperative that you get your second shooters to do the same because there's nothing worse than you shooting the Kelvin and then your second shooter shooting also white balance. Yeah. That is the worst. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. That would just totally waste all the time you've saved by having your sort of set colour. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's never going to be right. You know, this isn't about getting it right in camera in terms of the temperature. This is just simply about recording everything as one colour, one mm -hmm. temperature, so that we can then correct it afterwards. And one of the things that I, I teach on my program is how to control white balance using the histogram. So it's actually something solid to, to go off and it will tell you whether you're right or wrong in where you put that temperature slider. Mm. Whereas I think a lot of photographers really struggle with white balance control because ultimately most people are kind of just eyeballing it, just kind of moving that slider to where it looks right on that image. Yeah. Um, and what you end up as, as an end result when you've got that way of working is your images go from being cool to warm to neutral to cool to warm to neutral. It's just kind of all over the place, really inconsistent. Um, whereas when we record everything as one temperature and we can batch correct the temperature, the white balance afterwards, so like all bridal prep is one temperature, one correction afterwards, Every single bridal prep image will look exactly the same in terms of like your colour tonality, skin tones, the walls, everything will look yeah. exactly the same. So the consistency is off the scale and there's lots of photographers doing this, but it's not the easiest uh, to, to hurdle to jump, I think. I mean, you guys are used to it, but yeah. um, some photographers, especially for EVF, you know, they, they worry about, you know, guests and clients seeing the back of the screen if it's, yeah. if we're in doors and we're shooting 5,500 and it's ambient. I mean, it's orange as fuck, you know. <laughs> yeah. And that puts people off. They're like, yeah. God, I can't do this. But um, we've just got to have conviction and confidence in there, you know, yeah. to say, oh, like, what will like that afterwards, you know, it's fine. Yeah. When you're using these cameras for creating films, it's so much more critical to get it dialed in per scene mm. and per yeah. lighting situation because there's not as much latitude and yeah. we're so jealous of the post-production post <laughs> flexibility that the raw files have for photo oh, photography. So jealous of photographers shooting raw. Oh my yeah. goodness, honestly. <laughs> I don't envy you guys at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, how, how can people out there get you to work on their presets? Send me a DM. <laughs> and, where, and where's the best Slide place? Slide into those DMs on... Um, instagram okay. or you can just go to my website which is northernpresets.co.uk mm -hmm. it's a really shit name isn't it it's because I've, the first thing everybody says when i'm on a video call with them is you're so northern <laughs> 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 oh that's amazing you're not northern to us <laughs> yeah <laughs> you guys have accents oh. i love it um, well, Amy Lee, thank you very much for taking uh, even even longer than than we had asked for to be with us. Um, we really do appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Where where can people find you online? Instagram, 
DM Northern Presets Core or uh, northernpresets.co.uk. Send me an email. And yes, hopefully if you join us tomorrow, you'll get a cool new announcement. Yes, definitely. A hundred percent. I'm very excited about it. <laughs> yeah it's it's worth worth it it's worth the wait the 24 hour wait guys <laughs> <laughs> yes um and you can find us at cinematefilms.co.uk our instagram and facebook is forward slash cinematefilms we hope you enjoyed this episode and if you did you can join us on patreon at patreon.com forward slash perspective by cinemate for as little as a pound you can support us creating this awesome podcast and for the price of a coffee every month you can get access to all the q a's our clubhouse discussions and even more content that won't be available anywhere else if you don't have any money to give us just now, that's absolutely fine. You are still our best friends. You can just hit that subscribe button and you'll get notified as to when the new episodes of the podcast are released. If we could just get you to leave a review, we'll give you a shout out. That's cool. However, in the meantime, enjoy your life. <laughs>